Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 23. This week on the podcast I've got Fiona Monroe. She has to be one of the most inspirational people I think I've ever met in my life. And she has an absolutely remarkable story. She studied in Dundee, um, did her PhD, went on to a couple of jobs in the sort of design and user research field. And then her world was turned upside down when she was given a, a diagnosis of stage four ovarian cancer. And it was her approach after that diagnosis that is so inspirational and motivational to so many people. Um, she documented absolutely everything on her blog and across social media and talked openly and honestly about everything. And we go into all that on the podcast. And if you, you don't know of her story already, please go on her blog, fkmonroe.com. And I mean, there's literally hours worth of content in there to, to sort of dive into and to really understand her journey. But it's her sort of unwavering positivity and sense of humour that gets her through all this I think and even though I thought I would be really nervous going into this interview because of the subject matter but Fiona absolutely put me at ease and she basically said there's nothing that you can ask me that I haven't been asked before or that I'm going to get offended by Um, and just I mean she was so open and brutally honest and we talk about death, life, we actually touch on success a fair bit, um, that wasn't me preempting that, that was purely from Fiona's perspective um, and sort of re-evaluating life and the, the, the things that are really important. And Fiona's actually got, so there's a documentary out just now called My Digital Death, Fiona is one of the four participants in that, um, again links are in the show notes for that, it's well worth a watch, um, it's just a short documentary. Um, on the iPlayer and Fiona's got a book coming out at the end of May Um, so once that stuff comes out I will give you a shout and let you know because I'm absolutely sure they'll be well worth a read but before we dive into that I've got one thing that I want to highlight this week and that's something called D-Screen so it's a, a series of screenings that have been set up by Rick Curran and Blair Fraser. Um, so D-Screen is essentially a, an event for creatives to go along to, watch a movie together and then have a chat and a bit of a mingle afterwards and uh, talk about the film, talk about work, talk about anything um, and just sort of hang out. It's another one of these great sort of social events focused around design and creativity right here in Dundee. Um, more and more of them seem to be springing up and I think they're fantastic. They're a great informal way of getting out and meeting people that are doing similar things or things that are absolutely completely different. Um, so for the details of that, you can head to their website. It's dscreen.com. Uh, again, the link will be in the show notes. But they're going to be showing a film called Made You Look. Um, it's a documentary that looks at the sort of the landscape of creatives and how they manage their practice and how they sort of sustain a living from that. And it's on Monday the 8th of May and it's at the Vision Building. Um, again, as I said, uh, check out dscreen.co.uk for that and you'll also get the trailer for Major Look so you'll see uh, what the film's all about. And another thing to mention is it's absolutely free. 
Um, they do have a few sponsors, so there might well be a couple of nibbles in there as well. So well worth going along to. Um, I'm going to try and make it as well. So, time to get on with the podcast. So this is episode number 23, and this is with Fiona Monroe. I went to Duncan Jordanson in Dundee and I studied product design and it was a great course but for me it was very much about designing stuff and then making people think that they needed that stuff rather than designing stuff around what people actually needed and that always sat a bit uncomfortably with me um, which led me then to do a PhD because that was much more about people's needs and user research and meeting the needs of people rather than the other way around and then I kind of felt I found my niche so I felt that I loved working with people and I loved um, hearing their stories and finding out about them so that led me then to go and work for a number of health boards kind of looking at improving their services based around user needs and um, really a lot about co-production so involving all the stakeholders to make sure that um, all the services and all the experiences met the needs of everyone involved rather than just say the health professionals or just the patient um, and I was really driven by that um, worked long hours commuted thought I had it all thought that was like success that's what life was I was commuting um, five days a week um, I was volunteering I was studying in my evenings and then um, just landed my dream job I uh, was due to start and that day I was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and from then that kind of changed my whole life and my perception of life and what success is and what life's all about. So what was what was the initial thought? So when that obviously that like bombshell has been dropped on your, yep. your life and it sort of turned everything upside down. Yeah, so for me, uh, I've been going to the hospital uh, for a couple of months. Uh, looking at my symptoms and getting tested for various things and they were trying to eliminate cancer and I kept thinking it was cancer and we were having this kind of to and fro so for me when I was told it was cancer there was a sense of relief because um, I kind of like I kind of been feeling like I was going crazy and then to suddenly say no it is cancer you're right and to know what was happening um, it kind of gave me control I didn't feel like I was in limbo anymore and I think the other thing that helped around that is I've got quite a dark sense of humour so um, when I was first told I had cancer and I wouldn't be able to work and they left me and my husband in the room, the first thing I said to my husband was, oh good, we can get a dog. Um, <laughs> because I'd wanted one for ages and because of the commute we couldn't get one. So And from there we just laughed and we kind of knew that that was the approach we were going to take. It was just always to look at the positives that had come from it. I think, yeah, laughter is so important in yeah. that if you can laugh when the times are the darkest, then you can laugh any time, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think having a good sense of humour, yeah, it does make life a lot easier. And I'm not going to lie, there's been moments when I've cried, of course, but I think, you know, 99% of the time it's about genuinely laughing or about making jokes about a dark situation so that it becomes a bit lighter. Mm -hmm. I think also in hospital environment it's quite a sterile I mean there's not really much stimulation the sort of the walls are filled with NHS posters and yeah, yeah. there are all these sort of neutral colours and yeah there's little to pull from in an environment like that and if you can bring humour to that then it makes everyone feel better and that there's no awkwardness or that taboo around the subject anymore it's just yeah. like it's just we're just people having a laugh 
And I think when you say about the hospital, so the oncology ward was somewhere I was always terrified of going to and actually it's a really light-hearted ward and um, the nurses responded to my dark sense of humour. They make similarly dark jokes. I remember I was admitted I'd not long had my colostomy bag and one night about one o'clock in the morning because I wasn't sleeping the nurse was looking up um, Christmas glittery colostomy bags for me and that kind of humour that really helped me and you feel more like you have a friendship with them rather than this kind of patient health professional and that makes a big difference and I don't think other wards in the hospital are that kind of creative and that person-centred. And do you think your attitude and your approach to it was refreshing for them as well? Um, I think it can be, yeah, but I think um, in part it was refreshing for the nurses. Um, I think they try to have a really positive attitude and they try to support their patients in whatever way they need. Um, I felt like we always had a really good banter and that kind of made it more comfortable for me. So one example is uh, the first week I was diagnosed and I was in hospital and I was constantly getting blood tests and drips and a nurse came into my room and I said, look, I'm, I'm having a really bad day. I'm really grumpy. I don't want any more blood tests. And she walked out the room and she came back about 10 minutes later with an ice lolly and she's like, if you're going to act like a six-year-old, I'm going to treat you like a six-year-old. And so then she got to do the blood test because she'd made me laugh. So I think it's, yeah, it's just, they're just brilliant. They're really good. One of the, 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 the triumphs of this whole experience has been your online presence and um, everything that you've put out across social media and your blog and everything else. So at what point did that start and where did where did that idea come from? And was, was blogging something that you'd done previously and that was just a continuation of it or was this a whole new sort of world to go into? Um, so I had blogged in the past. I blogged um, as part of my job. I would blog about the activities we were doing in the projects and also the year before I was diagnosed um, I did a year of no spending so I blogged around not spending money and how to save money um, so I was used to being quite open but the reason I decided to blog about my cancer journey was in those first days when I was diagnosed and I started looking online um, for other stories, I was finding that it was only people with an early curable diagnosis that were blogging. And of course their stories were positive and life-changing because they knew that they were going to live for many, many years later. But there was no one blogging about what it's like to live with a late-stage incurable diagnosis. And when there was stories around that in the media or in films, they were always really, really depressing and they portrayed people just confined to their homes, looking really sick, not living their lives. And um, kind of, I guess, naively, I'd not started my treatment and didn't know how bad it would get, but I wanted to put that voice out there and I wanted to share it with people that you can still be positive with a late stage diagnosis. Um, so I initially started blogging, I guess, for myself and someone described it to me as it's like writing for your future self and so it's been really useful in in that aspect for me to look back on um, and in the first instance I didn't share it with family and friends I didn't even tell them I was blogging um, but it started getting a, a lot of interest around the world people start reading it and kind of responding to the thing that I noticed which was it's you know it's really nice to see someone with a late stage diagnosis blogging and then so I started sharing it with friends and family and that had the added benefit of instead of answering the same questions all the time they could just go to my blog and so if they wanted to know about my cancer they could read it on my blog but when they were with me it was just like it used to be so I was still the same person and it almost allowed this separation of my cancer and me as a person. Your style, um, your writing style is very open and very honest and in the 
the photographs and the videos that you create are yeah showing the most intimate details of your treatment of your process of your journey through this was that I mean was that difficult or was that something that just came easy that you just wanted everything to be out there and I suppose helpful for, for people to show them the real thing that you're going through um, I found it a lot easier than you'd expect actually and um, it got easier over time as well the more I shared and the positive reactions to that um, and I think kind of having a creative background you're always told to share your process and to share designs and share your ideas so that was so natural to me that I'd kind of been taught for eight years to do that and then I'd done it in my job so it just yeah, it came really easy and I think the feedback from people out in the world helped as well so they were always really encouraging really supportive and that just encouraged me to share more and more and it's actually been really helpful for me so when I'm having a really bad day and I share something about that and then to hear other people's stories and what they did to overcome that it creates like this support network for me. So you've created this sort of community and then around that where people in similar situations can reach out to you and there's a sort of mutual benefit and that that you can feed off them and they can feed off you at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think sometimes I'm supporting them more and sometimes they're supporting me more and that's it's nice. Um, I often thought that uh, that I was struggling to maintain the social media and stuff and that it was hard work and then it was suggested that I have a break. So I started to have a break and I lasted about a week because I hadn't realised how much I was getting from the people being in touch with me. And sometimes, you know, as great as family and friends are around me, they don't know what it's like to have stage four cancer, whereas the people I'm connecting with online are going through it or they've supported a loved one through it. So we can have those really honest conversations and we can you know make those dark jokes or we can cry together or we can laugh together and yeah it's this nice community where we're all supporting each other. One of the the most iconic things I think that from reading your blog and and looking at everything you put up was pre-operation you uh, in front of the camera and you've got a marker pen out and you're drawing on your belly the, the sort of the plan um in some sort of way I, I suppose the only way I could relate so that is sort of watching vet programs or like um, plastic surgery type stuff where they've got the marker pen out and they're like dotted lines. But I mean, it was so, it made it so much more relatable. And often with things like, like surgeries, you, you sort of disappear into a room and things happen and it's all behind closed doors. And then you come out and then everything is hopefully okay again and it's fixed and it's this magic touch. But actually starting to unpick that, that process, like you said, like, um, showing people this is actually what's going to happen and how much did you pester the the nurses the doctors to to, to find out more information because I, I can just tell from your face that that you always wanted to know more information about what's going to happen uh yeah I pestered them quite a lot uh and I was really lucky actually so I was I had conversations with three surgeons uh two surgeons were in Dundee and the one that was actually leading the surgery she was based in Aberdeen so we had various conversations and the two Dundee based ones used to draw me pictures all the time because I'd constantly ask questions and they were really really helpful and they were always really really honest and I learned that in oncology in particular you're given as much information as you ask about so you're not told your stage unless you ask your stage you're not told what the surgery will involve unless you ask you're not told where your cancer is unless you ask and so I learned to ask everything because I wanted to know everything and um, for me when I drew on myself it was a way of me dealing with what was happening because when they were telling me all these organs were going to be removed and I was listing them in my head I, 
I couldn't comprehend it and family weren't comprehending it and people kept saying oh it's okay you know they do it all the time and actually in reality they hadn't done a surgery this big on a stage four cancer patient before so for me to deal with that I think the drawing on myself actually really helped me and then it helped other people to be like oh shit actually that is major surgery um and it did help that they were visual around that as well so that they drew the pictures and you know things like um the peritoneum which i'd never heard of which is the sac that your organs are in so they drew that and explained that they'd have to move my organs out of my abdomen while i was unconscious work around that and then move them back in and things like that i'd never really thought about and it was just words I'd been hearing until they started to kind of visualise it. And so for me to share that, I thought the only way to do that was to visualise it as well. Mm. So you've had this experience um, and this, you've, you've gone through this. And how, I mean, how long has the journey been in total? Uh, so I was diagnosed on the 18th of January 2016. So um, it's just been over, over a year. My surgery was in May last year and um, I've been in remission since August last year. Obviously, that, that's been a massive change in your life. Um, and I imagine it's led to changes as you as a person, emotionally, physically, and mentally as well. I'd like to talk a little bit about is how that changes your outlook on, on life. I, mean, I sort of had an experience a couple of years ago where a couple of um, close members of the family passed away quite close together. And it made me rethink how I live life and for me it's now it's much more about experiences and it's about spending my money in a way that I can enjoy it all the time and it's all about going places and seeing things and doing things rather than saving up for the future or this and that and the other it's more about embracing things here and now um, and it's sort of made me reevaluate the hierarchy of needs in my life and what I value most and things like that um, so I'm wondering from that perspective how has that changed for you the sort of values and what, yeah what you value for me I kind of now divide my life into before cancer and after cancer and I kind of quite often talk about myself as two different people I can't relate at all to the person I was before cancer so looking back on that um like I said I was doing a long commute working full-time and then in my evenings I was volunteering and I was also studying to be a psychotherapist because I like to learn all the time I found it really hard to meet up with friends because I was always busy doing other stuff and I was also working out all the time so I was running and weightlifting and I was kind of driven by all these things that society said meant success and that was actually encouraged by so many people around me because they'd be like oh I don't know how you do this like you commute and you do this and you do this and you're like oh I must be doing the right thing then people are praising me all the time and then you kind of get this diagnosis and that's all stripped away so you know, my job went, I couldn't exercise, I couldn't study anymore, I couldn't volunteer anymore. Then I lost my hair. And so not only of all, kind of everything you identify with yourself, kind of physically, but also um, kind of emotionally as well. So, you know, I was no longer this, I was no longer a researcher because I couldn't do that job. And I was no longer somebody with kind of long blonde hair, like I was bald. And, you know everything changed about myself and when you're kind of stripped right down all that's left is your personality and your values and that made me like you say reevaluate what mattered and I kind of started to realize that actually like you say above all it's experiences and it's the people in your life so and 
a word I use a lot now is love. In those first few days, I guess first few months, just so many people were saying, you know, I love you, I'm here for you. And people had showed me that they were before, but no one ever voiced that. And it was just, it was so nice to see that, you know, all that support. And it made me think, like, why do people never express their feelings or take the time? Like, why are they always waiting for this perfect moment when, you know, when I earn the right amount of money or when I bought my house or, you know, then I'll go and do these things rather than doing them in this moment. And I remember I had a conversation with, a reporter and it kind of stays with me all the time when she said to me like what is it like to know that you're terminal and I says to her but everybody's terminal and for me that was kind of I'd never voiced it before but then I realized that that was the wake-up call and that's why I always say cancer is a gift because it made me realize that there's no second chances in you that nobody might have tomorrow so it's about vowing each day and that made me prioritize things so my husband and I we went on a cruise and um, I'd always wanted to do a shark dive so I did a shark dive and we've just booked a helicopter flight and all these wee things and just doing the things that I'd always wanted to do, so the things that I'd always been putting off. So I always said, like, I'm going to work really, really hard, pay off a mortgage, and then what I really want to do is be a yoga instructor. And um, But actually, that may never come, so now I was like, well, I'm just going to train to be a yoga instructor while I've got cancer. And it's, yeah, it's just made me realise that there is no tomorrow, so if you want to do something, and something's important to you to do it today. You said there that you're glad... Which is a, for a lot of people, that has seemed like a strange emotion or statement to put around cancer. Could you expand a little bit on why why you're glad it happened? Yep, so, see, maybe wouldn't use glad, but I'd use grateful. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's yeah. what you use on your blog, yeah, yeah is, is grateful. grateful. Yeah, um, I think I was wasting my life and I was kind of stuck in this rat race and... I was kind of going with what society said was success and how my life should be. And then suddenly I got cancer and I started doing what I thought success was and what mattered to me and spending more time with my family. I mean, my family were closer than ever now and my husband and I are closer than ever and I really value the friendships in my life. And also I think kind of the way I describe it is that I'd rather have a short, fulfilling life than a long, empty life. And I think if it wasn't for cancer, that's the route I was going down. And I don't think that, you know, commuting like 10 plus hours a week away from friends and family. And although I loved my job, uh, just that that time imbalance there. So I think it's I'm grateful for it because it made me reevaluate everything and not just kind of emotionally, but also it made me reevaluate my health as well. So how I'd been kind of working out and the diet I had around that, how damaging that was for the body and how I've changed. So it's kind of, it's filtered into every aspect of my life. And yeah, I think family members struggled with that phrase, grateful. But I think as the years progressed, they've kind of understood that and they've seen how I've shifted it to bring positives to my life. So I think my only wish is that everybody could see kind of, the benefits that cancer, not the benefits, the gifts that cancer can bring into their life. Yeah, because I wonder, you seem to have gained a lot of strength over the over the period. And I mean, I wonder if that same strength and that those same personality traits that you've gained through that experience would have prevailed if you'd have been on the previous path. Okay. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> Sorry. 
Well, I mean, because you say that you're grateful and you, yeah. you've, you've changed and you've, you've become this, this essentially a new, new person. Does it take something like this in someone's life to actually force them to take note and say, right, okay, well, I'm now much more driven or this has given me a new sense of purpose that instead of just towing the line in the way that, I mean, society would expect, so you, you, you have a career, you get a good job, you make a bunch of money, you get a nice pension, you retire happy. I mean, that's that's a fine way to live your life. But, I mean, it's not it's not really the philosophy that I live it by, and I think there's a lot more people now starting to question that. But does it have to take that horrible moment in your life to actually bring you to that realisation that this maybe isn't the, the best thing to be doing? Um, I hope it doesn't. It did for me. Um, and I worry that that for me that that was the only way for me to make that change. I had quite a few wake-up calls from life over the years that I ignored. Um, so I think for me it took a like, massive thing to happen. But I think there is a shift in society of people kind of making that change and deciding actually why am I in this rat race and why does society say that this is how it has to be and... I think there is that shift from a materialism to kind of more experience-based living. Um, but I do definitely notice in the cancer community, um, the people I connect with that have late-stage cancer, that they really, on the, on the whole, I think, uh, live their life more fully than anyone else because they know that time is so precious. And I think that's the thing that I really wish was out there in society, that actually time is precious for everybody. And going back to that thing that, you know, we, we all have a sell-by date. So it's not about living for the future, it's about living for today. And that's one of the reasons I blog and share my story is to try and get that message out and to filter into healthy people that, you know, you can make those changes now and I do know I notice those changes in my family and with my husband and friends that they are all their lives have slightly shifted as a result but it'd be nice if that could just kind of grow yeah. it's actually interesting that you you brought up the concept of success um, because it's a it's been a massive theme throughout um, the whole podcast and that I've been prodding people for their, their answers and it's often the most difficult question but you brought it up without being preempted uh, which is nice but what, the question that I often ask people is, what is success for you? Um, I think success is happiness. I think some people are genuinely happy, you know, following societal standards of, you know, the working and having the house and the mortgage and the pension, and that's fine. Um, and some people are happy working three hours a week, going travelling and living in a tiny home, and I think, and that's fine. I think... Where the problem is, is when we try to, we view success as something that somebody else um, creates. So as in a meeting like societal standards or ticking a box off. And I think, so for me, it's that simple. It's just if it makes you happy, if you're happy in your life, genuinely happy, then you're successful. So do you think you're successful? Yes, I think I'm <laughs> the most successful I've ever been. And for me, that's... There's still this weird irony because success was something I strove for, and um, I'm, it's un, it's unachievable if you're if success is measurable by your job or um, how much money you earn. But if success is measured by how happy you are, then it's entirely achievable. So yeah, I'd say I wasn't successful before, 
by societal standards I was but now um, maybe by societal standards I'm not but um, yeah I think I'm successful <laughs> No that's great you're actually the only person who's given that answer Okay. Um, in, in such a confident way I don't know if that's just down to the people that I interviewed but I'm starting to get the feel that it's probably linked with confidence if you are really confident on your own abilities and the, the sort of presence that you have in the world and the, the way that you're living your life, that you're more inclined to think that you are successful and that you, you are doing this. But I, so I want to know where where do you think your confidence comes from? Um, I think I've always been a confident person. I think it is just that life change. I mean, by societal standards, kind of. So if you look at money, so financially I'm poorer than I've ever been because I had to give up my job, but emotionally I'm richer than I've ever been and it's, for me, that success, like it doesn't matter what size my home is or what clothes I wear or how much money I have to spend, it's about looking for joy in the little things, so if that means me and my husband just having a laugh on a walk, like, yeah, that's success and I think I'm confident in that because I know it feels much better than my life felt before and really that all matters that's all that matters and I remember my mum always jokes uh, both my parents are kind of they're entrepreneurs so they've always had different businesses and stuff and so really I should have had a different opinion of success because of them but I didn't and they always say no one writes uh, your job title or your salary on your tombstone and it's so true and that's really stuck with me this year and I think that's given me the confidence that now I'm successful. So let's move on to talk a bit about food. From reading that, I've sort of seen a couple of recipes popping up on your blog and you sort of talked about the way that your diet's changed as well. So how yeah, how is how has your diet changed over the and why has it changed? This is my favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> um I've always been really big into food. I have a gluten allergy, so I don't eat gluten, but I would advise people not to give it up for health reasons. Because um, there is a lot of sort of fatty, hipstery yeah. diets and cookbooks out there. And there's nothing proven that gluten is damaging. I think if you're going to eat gluten, obviously eat your whole grains rather than your kind of white processed grains. But the reason I gave up gluten is because I have an allergy and um, the same with dairy. Uh, chemo's made me intolerant to dairy, so I gave that up for that reason. But going into kind of more broadly, I don't eat processed food. I started to do a lot of research into um, kind of chemicals in food and uh, pesticides. So I don't eat anything processed. Um, like I wouldn't eat a jar of anything. Um, I only eat organic or 99% organic because I still go out for dinner. Um, I gave up sugar. There's a lot of debate, especially in the cancer community around sugar. So some people believe that uh, sugar feeds cancer. And then there's also the argument that everything you eat is turned into glucose by the body. So if you were to give up sugar, you'd have to give up everything. So what I've given up is kind of your processed white sugar. So I still eat fruit. Um, occasionally have honey but I don't eat kind of the like I wouldn't eat a chocolate bar or I wouldn't have like a cup of tea with sugar in it because for me that's just a highly processed food that is of no benefit to your body at all and I think for me the kind of the turning point in that was when you do research when you look at various cancer uh, charities like um, Cancer Research UK or Macmillan they all state that there's no evidence around 
sugar feeding cancer but I know that when you get your scans for cancer the dye that they inject into your body is put into a glucose solution because it goes to the cancer cells first and highlights them so there's this imbalanced argument that if glucose goes to those cells first surely they're needing the glucose so that for me was why I didn't eat sugar I then I used to eat um when I was weight training and running, I used to eat a high-protein, low-carb, low-fat diet. And I thought I was really healthy and I looked great. And I counted calories all the time and I was really stressed about food. And now I am the complete opposite. I eat high-carb diet because I eat about 10 portions of fruit and veg a day. And I also eat a high-fat diet. And a nutritionist that I'm friends with the other day said, and I find this fascinating, that English is the only language where the fat you eat and the fat on your body have the same word. And I find that fascinating. And they're like, fat, eating fat doesn't make you fat. Eating sugar makes you fat. And I find like now, so I eat loads of fat, loads of oils, like coconut oil, olive oil, loads of avocado, um, all those kind of things. And like I said, loads of carbs. And I weigh the exact same as I did when I was weight training and running and really paranoid about food and now I couldn't tell you how many calories I eat. If I'm hungry I eat and I now eat the foods that my body needs so I think just eating whole foods and you know loads of nuts as well. Yeah if, I, if someone had told me two years ago to eat a high fat, high carb, low protein diet I'd have told them that you know that's mental but actually it's it's really really healthy and you should be eating loads of grains and it really upsets me that personal trainers are kind of feeding this low-fat high-protein diet because yeah it may physically make you look great but actually what it's doing to your insides is not what your body needs at all and it's very low in nutrients because you're not getting your kind of your fruit and veg and all those kind of vitamins sorry I get very passionate about food <laughs> but is that an easy diet to sort of go out to the shops and buy yeah, it's really easy. So people always say to me, but what do you eat? And I'm like, loads of rice, lentils, uh, beans. There's so many different types of beans. I think before I just thought it was kidney beans, but you've got like your black beans, your um, chickpeas, like every, you know, everything, your butter beans. And <clears throat> then there's all your different kind of veg and stuff and not just your kind of standard stuff, but like going out into that. I think a lot of people just think I eat kale all the time, but <laughs> no, I really don't. And I always laugh because my husband is a massive carnivore and now in our house we're kind of pretty much 100% vegan in the house and if I can feed him then I think anybody can easily follow this diet and we just both feel so much better for it. We occasionally eat fish but I, I don't eat chicken, um, very rarely eat red meat um, and I love meat but so that was based on kind of research around cancer and I think that's entirely personal and people should definitely when making decisions around things like meat or dairy or gluten they should trust their instinct. Um, I don't think you should cut out a food group other than sugar just for the the sake of it just because some you know person who's written a book says that it's good for you I, d I don't agree with that I think everyone's different everybody's different and I know that I gave up meat I was feeling a bit weak so I put fish back in my diet and it's about listening to your body but yeah no I eat loads of stuff so are there any like books or blogs or places that, that you go to get inspiration for food because say someone is thinking about moving to that kind of a diet it's, it's difficult to just know and know what advice is right and know what advice is just nonsense so there's various books 
I buy and then um, there's a woman called Chris Carr so she's been living with stage 4 cancer for 10 years um, she writes brilliant books I edit them slightly her recipes because she says to put maple syrup in a lot of her recipes which I don't do um, there's another book I Quit Sugar uh, which is really really good book and then just you know your average vegan vegetarian cookbook um, I even like I use a lot of Jamie Oliver recipes there's like loads of recipes out there it's just about adjusting them one of the other things I want to touch on was the, the random acts of kindness which is an amazing little I suppose project that you've taken on and um, so where where did that come from? Uh, so when I was in hospital after my surgery, I was in for six weeks and uh, my eldest sister and her eldest son, my nephew, wanted to do something uh, to support me and my husband. Um, I got quite down when I was in hospital. I was in this kind of tiny little room with my back to the window and I couldn't get out of bed. So I was verging on. I wouldn't want to use the press, but I was in a dark place. So she wanted to do something to help cheer me up. So... Her and her son organised a coffee morning and half the money went to ovarian cancer research and half the money went to my husband and I. And the plan that she had was that we would spend it on a treat for us. But for me that kind of felt uncomfortable and it felt like I was making a financial benefit from my diagnosis and uh, that really, it didn't sit right with me. And my sister, I wanted to give it to charity and said, no, I really want something good for you to come of it. And at the time I was reading a book called The Power of Kindness, which is my favourite book. It's amazing and it's about how kindness is so good for your soul and your life and how nothing bad ever comes from kindness. So I said to her, well, what about if I split the money up and start giving it as random acts of kindness? And she was like, yeah, okay, then, you know, kind of you're giving it away, but it's a nice, that nice feeling. And I had no idea how amazing it would be actually. I split up the money into £20 notes and I put it in envelopes along with the symptoms of ovarian cancer because uh, I wanted to raise awareness around that as well. And the first time my husband and I went out after I was home from surgery, we were in tonic in Dundee and um, not having a vegan lunch, having a burger. <laughs> and uh, there was this these two women at the table next to me and I was noticing that everyone else in the uh, restaurant, they were on their phones or they weren't really talking to each other and kind of going back to that thing around success and society, they weren't really living in the moment, they weren't enjoying the moment, they were somewhere else. But these two women, two tables away from us, were just laughing and the energy coming off of them was amazing. Like Their phones weren't on the table, they were really engaged with each other and I, I said to my husband, like, I'm, I'm going to give them my first envelope and I was terrified because not often do you go up to a stranger and give them money. So I kind of just like, as I was walking past, kind of threw the envelope at them and thought nothing more of it. Although when I left, I kind of was a bit like squealing because I was so excited. And those women then found me online and they got in touch and we're now friends. And they um, went and did a bungee jump for Macmillan and they raised £4,000. They came to uh, my masquerade ball. Um, you know, we keep in touch. And that kind of sparked something in me that there was something about kindness and like the impact it has on people. And I've since received messages from them about how it's changed their life and it's changed their view of life and their values on life about how, in their words, if someone with stage four cancer can be doing stuff like handing out random acts of kindness, should they not be reevaluating their life? So it's had these other ripples. I started to then hand out more envelopes and 
you know, every little story has just been amazing. Sometimes people get in touch, sometimes they don't. That's not the aim for me. But I love hearing how it's impacted them. And um, I handed one out to, there was a girl busking in Edinburgh and she was just amazing. And it's the only one I filmed, actually. And the reason I filmed it was she was so good that I wanted the additional kindness to be that people saw her singing. And unbeknown to me, um, she was had already recorded for The X Factor and she was on it a few months later. And I didn't know I don't watch The X Factor, but that night my Facebook went crazy because everyone recognised her. And she then surprised me at my masquerade ball by appearing. And it's just all these little things. But I think the nicest thing that's come from it is I started with £500 and I still have about, I think, £400 left because people keep donating um, and people are handing out their own random acts of kindness around kind of well, people like people in um, America and people in Ireland that are doing it off the back of it. But also people are donating to me to do it so it's constantly growing. And I think that just proves that, you know, in a world where everything is pretty shitty at the moment, that actually people are kind and that um, they love hearing stories of kindness. And that gives me kind of hope, not just about my diagnosis, but about society so it's been a really nice um it's it's given me hope during my journey and it's allowed something positive to come as well and aside from the financial thing of giving people money for me spreading awareness around the symptoms is also really important because every time someone gets the money whether they get in touch with me or not they share a photo of the money and the symptoms so then those ripple effects you know um, I always say that the one thing I want to come from my diagnosis is that it saves someone's life so I hope that the side project of that is that someone will see those symptoms and recognize that they might have ovarian cancer and get diagnosed earlier so yeah I guess it yeah it's been good <laughs> it's an amazingly selfless thing to do someone's given you a gift and you said no I don't want to accept that I want to give it to other people and yeah you can see that that ripple effect, as you, you say, just going out. But how how do you decide that that person deserves a random act of kindness, or that where's the, there must be like a spark or a click or something that just in your mind goes, yeah, there's one or there's one. Um, so I remember that first one. My husband said to me, like, how do you know that they deserve the first envelope? And I was like. It kind of made me think, I was like, I don't know, they don't. Like, surely everybody deserves kindness. And I think it is an instinct thing. If someone catches my eye, I'll give them an envelope. Some There's been a few ones that I've missed, so I've thought, like, oh, I'll finish what I'm doing, then I'll give them an envelope, and the moment's gone. Um, but it is hard, and I try to do it in a way that isn't judging. It's just um, instinct. And I've, actually, I've not handed out one in a while, and... Um, yeah, it's, I've not kind of tuned into it. I think the nice thing around it is I love people watching and it's nice to kind of observe people and you notice little things that you wouldn't have noticed. Uh, one of my favourite ones that I handed out was I was in the health food shop that I buy all my food and I just was having a cup of herbal tea and there was this family next to me and it was, I think, a mum and kind of three daughters and they were just, there was just something really beautiful about the way she was treating them and just joking with them and uh, the youngest one was so excited because her mum was letting her have a hot chocolate and it was kind of those simple joys and I think that's something that sparks in me when I see people that are just, I guess it's back to that success thing where they're 
emotionally successful that kind of sparks something in me and um, sometimes I'll write what's on there is I just put like your family is amazing on the envelope and handed it to her and yeah so I think it's it's actually that and I'd never realized that it's yeah when people are enjoying life that usually gets my attention. So you've been involved in is it two Mm-hmm. Two documentaries over I don't know in the past year or so. Yeah, yep, two yeah. over the last year. Yeah. One for the BBC, which is already out. Yep. And another one that's out. Yeah, the other one should be out in May, okay. and that's also for the BBC. So how how is that experience of of doing the filming and and sort of telling your story and, and giving that to someone else compared to the the way that you put your content out on the blog because you obviously have complete control over that but with the documentaries you're handing over your story to someone else to reinterpret that and, and tell it for you if you like that's quite um, nerve wracking so for instance with the one that's out already filming took place about three or four days and then what actually goes out is just five minutes long so they have so much editorial control over what they can cut and how that is portrayed and that can be quite frightening because I always try and give like a positive message and I think 99% of the time I'm positive but that 1% of the time you know I'll say I'm pissed off with cancer and I think I worry that if someone's filming me for four days they have full potential if it's going down to five minutes to just show that 1% of being pissed off with cancer um, but I think for me it was just about having a good rapport and a good energy with the team so the one that first one went out um, the people that were filming me had personal experience of losing people to cancer or had had cancer themselves and that helped a lot and also um, they've been really clear about the message that they wanted to portray so that first one was about people um, with late stage cancer who are sharing their story digitally and doing so in a really um, positive well not positive but kind of clear and honest way so for me that was quite clear. And then the second one is looking at, um, and I'm not sure how much I can say because it's not been released, but is looking more at people with a late stage diagnosis who are living a positive life. Not necessarily blogging about it, but who are, um, I guess, reevaluating what success is for them and enjoying every moment. So those kind of stories, they kind of met my values. Whereas I think if someone had asked to do a documentary about how awful it is to have cancer, that is not something I'd agree to. So, yeah, it's just them being really clear about what they're looking for and then me being really clear about what my values are. You mentioned anger. Um, <laughs> but that that just doesn't seem to exist for you. There's, I mean, on the outside, I mean, there may well be on the inside. Um, but, yeah, I mean, anger to me seems like a rational response. Yeah, that... that for me, I'd imagine there'd be a lot higher percentage of anger and frustration. And where where is that? Where is that gone? Or does that exist, and you just don't show it? Or? Uh, sometimes I get maybe angry is a bit of a hard, bit harsh word, but frustrated. I sometimes say to my husband, like, I'm so grateful for you know all the gifts cancer's brought me, and you know the value I place in life. But does the price? have to be that I don't get to live as long as everybody else and that's kind of where the frustration comes and I now I manage that frustration with I view it as an exchange so I view that I exchanged my organs for life and I exchanged uh, my hair for remission and I exchanged um, kind of a longevity of life uh, 
for one filled with more meaning so and that kind of helps the anger thing I think if, for me if I constantly see the value it helps to manage the anger but yeah there are times um, not so much angry but just uh, where the emotions dip there was times during chemotherapy which is so hard I mean I, it's so hard to put into words how awful chemotherapy is where you just I, I less get angry about me and I more get angry for other people so I think like to myself, I'm so lucky, I'm going through chemo, my husband's supporting me, what about the people who are going through chemo on their own? So I always try and think, view that my situation could be worse, and that that helps with the anger as well. You you must have been in some dark places, darker than most people can probably imagine. What gets you through that? Is it, yeah, is it books, is it people, is it thoughts, is it your own motivation, what? Um, my husband. So I say to him all the time, and I realised really clearly recently as I'm writing a book about my journey, and kind of he kept coming up as I was writing that I couldn't have done anything I've done without his support and without kind of the jokes he makes and um, just him being there. And you know, it's little things like I will often support people who have a colostomy bag and they're not dealing with it, and I see that they feel or they'll say that they're really distressed or they don't feel sexy or they feel ugly or they feel ashamed. And for me, like, that's never been an issue with my husband. So if it's not an issue with my husband, then I don't care what other people think. And, you know, for him to be like, you're still my fee or um, to make jokes around he's got an equally dark sense of humour or like we were on holiday and I said, I want to wear a bikini. What do you think? And he's like, why wouldn't you wear one? So it's those kind of things. Um, I get a lot of strength from him and that helps a lot um, and I think the other thing is books help a lot so there's one book in particular and that's The Cancer Whisperer by Sophie Savage um, I've now met her she's amazing she has stage 4 lung cancer and um, she speaks very openly about how you deal with that and the emotions around that and that's helped you know knowing that there's other people and um, there's also support groups on Facebook as well, various kind of cancer support groups and just talking around to kind of your emotions and how you're feeling and I think, yeah, I get strength from other people but I definitely think, for me, the main factor has been my husband. I want to go on and talk a bit about a dark subject and that mortality. Yeah. Something that you touched on before and that facing your own mortality yeah. and it's often a taboo. And in a society, we just don't deal with it. And we sort of push it into a corner and say, oh, well, it happens when it happens. Which I feel is a really unhealthy way of looking at things because when inevitably those things come round, you don't understand how to deal with that and it hits you a hell of a lot harder. Um, but I, I kind of want to get your perspective on mortality and how, how your perspective changed. This kind of ties into actually what I was going to say before about dark places so um, the year before I was diagnosed I had emergency surgery and my heart stopped on the operating table and after that kind of my perception of mortality and of death changed um, I've always kind of had a dark morbid sense of humour and um, I talked about death quite openly and but then when that happened and kind of being faced you know, right there in front of you, your own mortality, and then a few months later to get diagnosed with incurable cancer, it makes you reevaluate and it makes you think about 
kind of this fact that we go through society and we go through life thinking that we're going to live forever. And for me, it's made my life a lot easier being really open about that. Um, some people, understandably, especially those close to me, can't talk around that, and I get that. Um, a huge support for me has been my one of my sisters. She's um, a nurse, and so and she's done working in intensive care units and in palliative care. So I can speak really openly with her about it, and that helps. And then also with um, kind of the nurses in oncology as well. But I think. Uh, I try and just view it, there's this quote, and I can't remember who, I don't know who to credit it to, but it says like, one day we'll all die, but until then we live. And I think that's what it's about, like, yeah, we are all going to die, but it's about, that doesn't matter if you're enjoying your life and living for today. And I think the real crime is when you die and you've not had value in your life. So for me, I'm pretty open and okay with mortality and my own mortality, because now I'm living my life and that makes, you know, I'm doing all the things that I've always wanted to do. So if I was to die tomorrow, you know, I'm fulfilling all those aims. But I think, like I say, the real crime is that people that expect to live for forever or they expect that they can do all these things once they've paid off their mortgage or they've done this or they've done that. And actually, what if they get hit by a bus tomorrow? Like, what a waste of a life. So, yeah, that's my take. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely agree in that quality over quantity yeah and that even in the stuff that's been in the press recently about the extending people's lives and the, but where people would rather have a quality of life yeah and um, with the drugs that they're being um, administered so yeah it, i think it is i mean it's not going to change overnight no. but it'd be nice to to sort of influence some people and just make them reevaluate what what they're living for and Again, going back to the sort of priorities and the hierarchy of needs and what is actually really important. Um, and I think something, sorry, uh, when you said about the quality and quantity, so I've had people mention that. So I've had people say, um, would you not rather have, you know, still had all your... Like, would you not rather have not had a colostomy bag and had a life without that? And I think that's a quality quantity thing. So if I'd not had a colostomy bag, um, I would have left cancer in my body, so my life would have been shorter. And so I think it's also possibly about reevaluating what the quality is and about how much you can actually do when you're on all these drugs or having surgery and, um, I guess, challenging perceptions around that as well, about bringing quality and meaning into your life as well. So let's talk about now and let's talk about the future. So I noticed that you, you've started up a yoga school, is that what you call it? Uh, or a yoga... Business? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so you said that before that your dream was to become a yoga instructor yeah. and that's now been realised. Yep, so I... It kind of happened by accident. I'd always wanted to be a yoga instructor but thought it took far too long. And after my surgery... I'd kind of done yoga in the past, but after surgery I wanted to get back into that and I approached a few yoga studios and they're like, mm, you've had too much work done, you know, our insurance won't cover that, mm, we're not really sure how to manage that. So I contacted a woman that I used to do yoga with in Glasgow when I was working in Glasgow and she suggested starting off gentle with yin yoga and it was life-changing the poses um, are really slow you sit in them for about five minutes each but it was just kind of stretching off scar tissue I started to heal much faster I was walking three miles a day and this was only um, eight weeks after having all these organs removed and people had said you know like six months down the line you might not be able to climb the stairs yet there was this massive change happening 
Um, so I wanted to push that further and I contacted a yoga training school and I had no intention of becoming a yoga instructor. I just wanted to really learn about what I could do and I met with them fully expecting them to be like, no, you're, you're living a dream, like you can't come on our course. But the woman was really open-minded and she said, no, I think the course would benefit you. I think you'll get a lot from it. And um, she signed me up. So I started and once a month, two days, like for a weekend, we'd go and we'd learn yoga poses and we'd also learn about kind of the breathing and the meditation and chakras and all of this and I just noticed something was changing I was becoming much more mindful so I stopped kind of any stress about the future or my diagnosis because I was just constantly thinking about what today and the value of today and also as my breathing changed meaning my operation they removed part of my diaphragm so for a while I couldn't even sneeze properly but then as I was learning kind of the yoga breathing like my lung capacity came back and I was able to walk further and I was getting fitter and then with the postures you know my body was moving in ways that you know I wouldn't have even thought was possible like doing headstands and all this kind of crazy stuff that um, I couldn't do before cancer so it was amazing I was doing it during and I started to realize it was it was changing my life it was changing my health um, on every level emotionally physically spiritually and I realized that I wanted to kind of share that with other people and I think before when I'd wanted to be a yoga instructor I thought it was about fitness and um, that was in my phase of kind of being into weights and running and stuff. But actually I realised it's so much more than that. And one of my favourite quotes around that is, um, yoga's not about tightening your arse, it's about getting your head out of it. And uh, it's so true. Um, so I decided that I did want to uh, teach yoga. So I qualify in adults yoga in August. But my PhD was in children's outdoor play and learning and I'm really big into kind of mindfulness for kids and outdoor spaces. So I went and trained um, as a children's yoga instructor. And so that's the phase of my business that I set up just now. And I start teaching next week. So I'm in um, four schools next week and I've also got some private classes as well. And it's just that kind of buzz and that energy around doing what I'm passionate about and not worrying about how successful it is by societal standards so I used to be like oh I can't ever do something with kids because what if I don't make enough money what if it's not successful and then I realized like what if success is just running a class and it doesn't matter how many people go to the class and it's totally changed my perception because you know I set up the class and the outcome doesn't matter because the intention is what matters and it's so when you ask before, um, do I think I'm successful? That's why I say yes, because I'm doing what I've always wanted to do and I'm doing it with the best of intentions. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been a life change. And around that also is um, taking the time to write a book. So that's something I've always wanted to do as well. And I've found like a really deep love of writing and of sharing my story. And um, I get a lot from that as well. So. Yeah, they're the kind of big major shifts in my life just now. But not doing them in an all-consuming 40 hours a week way, doing them in a way that still allows me to go and have fun and have adventures and stuff. And as far as your, your digital presence, because you've now got this amazing chronological diary of your your experiences, your thoughts, your worries, your motivations, your inspiration for people. How How do you take that forward now and how do you build upon it? Um, some of that's going into my book um, so the book's kind of split into parts of life before cancer so life when I thought I was successful and 
actually I think my life was quite toxic and full of uh, dis-ease which then led to cancer and then there's a bit about the journey and about coping with that and how that's changed me but then the main part of the book I think is really about drawing from that kind of the positives and the learning I've taken so the lessons cancer has given me and how I'd like people who've not had those life-changing moments to um, take those lessons and maybe make changes in their life without having to have that kind of dramatic life shock to them yeah on your blog you, you sign everything off um love light and <laughs> mermaid tales <laughs> yeah so where, where does that come from um love and light is uh i started using it because it's i didn't like i kind of like it's about that thing of you know sending peace and hope and nice things to people um the mermaid tales is a bit more random that's um when i was in hospital my husband gave me a gift of a mermaid blanket and i started wearing it to my chemotherapy sessions and that became expected and it led to other people getting chemo often all just sit in silence but as soon as they see crazy women with a mermaid tail they start having a conversation and they start having a joke and it kind of relieves the tension in the room and it kind of for me, it gave that message that, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lose my personality. I'm not just going to be hooked up to a machine. I'm still the same person. I still like a bit of a laugh. I still like things to be a bit silly. I maybe in my theories, I'd really like glittery, sparkly nonsense. Um, so it's kind of having a joke around that and about not losing my personality in cancer. And I didn't want uh, the blog to have like a serious name. And also, I really intentionally don't have the word cancer in my blog title or my Facebook title. I'm quite a big believer in um, over-identifying with things. I don't, never wanted to be known as Fiona with cancer. It's more about uh, Fiona who, I don't know, has changed her life or views things positively. Um, and I think quite often a, an identity become, can become all-consuming. And I think that for me as well as my friends and family I didn't want my life just to be cancer and for people just to think they could only talk to me about cancer and um, you know it's kind of that positive mental attitude whether people believe in it or not but um, about attracting what you think about and I didn't yeah I guess I didn't want cancer to be kind of the forefront of my identity yeah I think the mermaid tale is a great sort of metaphor looking at what you've done as a whole taking all this thing and really made a song and dance about the brilliant things um, throughout the whole the whole process and your whole yeah. journey. Um, so it's a, it's a really nice way of tying that all together. Of it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so if, if people do want to find out about your story or reach out to you on social media, where do they find you? So my blog address is fkmunro.com which is um, f-k-m-u-n-r-o or my Facebook page is just Fee Munro, Love Light and Mermaid Tales Great, thank you very much Thank you And that was episode 23 um, It was an absolute pleasure to have Fiona on the podcast so I really want to thank her for taking the time to, to come and do that and I urge you, please, if you haven't gone and already checked out her blog, um, fkmonroe.com, go and do it. it. It's well worth a read, even just 15 minutes, 20 minutes on lunchtime. Um, there's just so many wonderful little snippets and stories and parts of our journey that are all documented on there. So definitely go and check that out. So thanks again to her for coming and do that. 
beyond that, um, as far as the podcast is concerned, Facebook group, I think we're up in over 60 members now. Uh, but please do come along and join that. So that's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, and what I want to start doing there is having discussions in and around the episodes every week. So if you've got a question, you've got a thought, you've got an idea, get on the Facebook group, share it, ask a question. Similarly on Twitter, uh, at CCC Dundee. And again, if you enjoyed the episode, drop me a tweet. If you didn't, similarly, let me know. I'm always up for some constructive criticism. I'm always trying to improve the podcast, so just let me know what I can make better. So that's it. Until next week, I will catch you there. Goodbye.